0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Jennifer Juliano to talk to us about her new book, A Primer for Teaching Digital History, and about how she uses the NSA in her pedagogy and in her classrooms. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hi, how are you all? Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited that you're here and we get to talk about um, your work. Before we dive into that, though, will you please tell us about yourself?
0: Sure. Um, I am an associate professor of history, American Studies and Native American and Indigenous Studies at IUPUI, which is um, in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, I'm a white academic who lives and works on the lands of the Pokagon Band Potawatomi, the Wea, the Shawnee, and the Miami. Most of my work focuses on issues of race and representation, uh, but I also do a lot of work around pedagogy and digital teaching and the like.
1: What brought you to this work? When you were planning your journey through higher ed and collecting up your degrees so you could get to this point, uh, where would you think you would go
0: and, and how did you plan? Um... I am one of those weird little kids so um, around the age of 10 my mom was doing a lot of genealogical research on her family and she made a bet with me that I couldn't read all of the Abraham Lincoln biographies in our public library Um, and the deal was if I could read all of them she would take me on a vacation to see all of the sites that I had read about. Um, So I actually, as a little kid, was fascinated with history and really enjoyed that. So I read all of the Abraham Lincoln biographies. She took me on a trip to Springfield, Illinois. um, And that was sort of the beginning of my passion for history. So I used to accompany her to do grave rubbings and to archives. Um, I was the only little kid who knew how to use microfilm and microfiche machines. Um, So it's sort of like a family passion or a family inheritance, if you will. So it sounds like you went to a lot of libraries. (laughs) I did. I spent a lot of time in libraries and archives, a lot of time in church basements with church records. Um, You know, it was it was kind of what we did in the summer was my mom would pack up myself and my three siblings and we would take a day trip here or there to do research. and, And it became something that was sort of, you know, our family adventures is what she used to call them so there was
1: intergenerational inspiration for you becoming a historian did she share what had inspired her
0: she did actually um her aunt and uncle were um, getting ready to celebrate their 50th anniversary and she was asked by a family member by one of her cousins if she could do a little bit of research on their family history so this was back in the 1980s. Um, And so she basically started this, like it was supposed to be just this very small family history project um, to sort of help out a family member. And she's still working on it today. So she's traced her family back um, all the way to Germany and Ireland. And she's tracing my father's family back to Italy as well. And so what inspired you to go beyond college and into grad school? At the simplest, it's because I like reading. Um, I really, really like books. I really like learning something new. And I like teaching. I like the notion that you've never learned enough or that there's always something new to learn. And I was smart enough to know that I probably didn't have the temperament to deal with kind of kindergartners or third graders, and that I probably wanted to focus a little more on like high school or college students. And by the time I went to school, went to college at Miami University of Ohio, I had a pretty good sense that I wanted to actually be a professional academic, that I wanted to be a professional historian and and write books. Um, And that meant being a college professor. So I did a master's degree and then a PhD and, and sort of fell into this world where not only do you get to learn new things yourself, but you get to communicate those to friends and family and your students and the general public. And it's, it's a pretty heady thing to have a book come out with your name on the cover. Um, and so it's, I sort of fell in love with that sort of translation from my own ideas to sharing those ideas with others.
1: So it sounds like you started firmly as an analog historian. You were reading books that you got at the library. You were going to church basements and looking at the archives. You were tramping around on family vacations. You were doing grave rubbings in the cemeteries. And yet you're now an advocate of digital history and of un essays. How did you make that leap?
0: Um, Well, actually, I made that leap in high school a little bit. So um, growing up, I got a job working in our public library. I I basically shelved books. Um, And then when I went to college, um, I started working in our university archives and then at the William Holmes McGuffey Museum. And I was really fascinated with sort of archives and libraries and collections and sort of how all of this knowledge was sort of out there and available. But I also was a pretty geeky kid and was lucky enough to grow up next to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, who had um, a lot of community programs around technology and this new thing called the internet. And so I actually grew up um, experimenting with computers. So I learned to build desktop computers. I was friends with people who were working for internet service providers in the 90s. Um, You know, I grew up with dial up and message boards. And as part of that, we learned how to build websites and build computers and, and do those things. And so when I got to graduate school at the University of Illinois, I realized there was this sort of opportunity to sort of, you know, merge my skills together, my research skills on the one hand and my sort of Internet based communication skills on the other. And so I spent a lot of time building digital collections and, and helping other academics sort of build their digital profiles. So it sort of started there with this sort of fascination or, or opportunity with, you know, putting information out there on the web and the notion that you could talk to somebody across the globe and get an answer back in, in hours and minutes rather than weeks and days. And so you've written
1: a book, A Primer for Teaching Digital History, and part of chapter three has become the basis of an article that you recently released called The NSA as Native-Centered History and Pedagogy. Can you talk to us about how digital history can help us in decolonizing knowledge?
0: Sure. So one of the great things about digital history is it opens up the ability to use different types of sources that you can struggle with when you're just writing in prose, right? So in digital history, you can use audio, you can use video, you can use texts, you can use computational methods that allow you to do things like analyze frequencies or make visualizations. And so part of what digital history does is it democratizes access to those materials, but it also allows you to do what they call mixed methods work, which is using different types of materials and different types of methods together to sort of make new claims and new products. And so for me, part of what digital history does as decolonization is it allows us to bring in native voices and native speakers who aren't necessarily out there writing books or writing academic articles. Instead, maybe they're putting up a TikTok video or they're an artist who's released a song or they're a community member, you know, recorded telling a story about their family. And what digital history lets us do is is use those materials and value those materials at the same rate we do those sort of traditional analog, you know, diaries and manuscripts and and things that come in, like, you know, formal national collections.
1: You have talked a little bit about being a white professor. And in your book and in your articles, you do talk about the demographic where you live and where you teach is largely a white university with white students. How have the approaches of using unessays an essays and digital history helped them come to terms with appropriation and where they had seen themselves before they came into the class and then when they start creating their work?
0: So I think when students come into my class, you know, we're in Indiana, which has a relatively conservative educational system. And by conservative, what I mean is um, they tend to value written words, written records, you know, things that are sort of... Created in the process of government and and settlement and things like that. And so when students come to my classroom, they're oftentimes thrown a little bit because I talk to them about, you know, what is the, is there a difference between, you know, a Cherokee origin story about a turtle rising from the waters and founding the Cherokee people versus, you know, um, the notion of a a man born of a virgin, Right. So so for my students you know part of the the sort of uneducating that I do is we talk a lot about how knowledge is produced and valued. And one of the things that they really have to grapple with is why it is we value written records more than oral records or more than objects that are from, you know, communities in the past. And by the time they get to the end of the class, you know, hopefully what they've realized is that, you know, the values of a a family history or, or an oral tale or you know, a a valued piece of clothing is just as valuable as the Declaration of Independence or as valuable as, you know, the Constitution or, you know, the diaries of George Washington, for example.
1: Often when we assign written projects for students to write an essay, for example, and we expect them to turn in a bibliography, they then are looking for published books. And particularly when we're looking for sources to use to unpack native history. A lot of students will find things that were written by the settlers, their published diaries, their accounts, their published letter collections, and that is recentering a white voice. How does the NSA and digital projects help decenter the white voice for a native based project?
0: So, one of the the best examples I can give of this is the ability to annotate a document. So annotation is the process of going in and basically layering in commentary and questions on top of an original document. So imagine you have a two-page letter from um, a white settler here in Indiana. Um, Part of what students can do with digital history is they can use annotation tools to go in and basically pose questions and say things like, why does he use the word savage? Well, this word savage comes from here, or you know, when he refers to this particular community, what he really means is this. Um, and, and that's where digital history is, is kind of very valuable, is that it allows us to critique and dig into settler perspectives, and not necessarily say that they're not valid, but to present multiple views of them that might be very different. So, for example, you know, if students are writing about the Sand Creek Massacre, which happened in Colorado, you know, there's tons and tons of records of the Sand Creek Massacre from the perspective of of white settlers. But my students can take, for example, a video recording of a member who's a descendant from someone who's passed in that massacre, and they can layer that over top of the document so that as somebody else reads it, they can pause for a moment and hear the words of a descendant and about how this massacre impacted their family or impacted their history. Um, And that's where digital history is really beautiful, is that it offers the ability to present multiple perspectives or divergent perspectives on the same level and and at the same time as these more traditional analog accepted sources.
1: Some of the examples you give in the book as um, resources for students to use are art and as you've said, oral history and and a number of non-written sources. Um, For students, then you ask them to consider why these materials may be in museums or archives and who do they actually belong to. How does the digital project allow them to start asking questions of, Why does a university archive have remains of a Native person, and where do they belong?
0: Yeah, so one of the most interesting things for students is they don't realize how surrounded they are every day by objects of Native life, whether that's the land they're standing on or whether that's, you know, Um, particular physical land features or, you know, uh, things like the mounds that are in Ohio that students oftentimes just don't realize how saturated the world around them is with Native um, history. And so one of the things that digital history lets us do is attempt to gather together disparate pieces of evidence that you might not necessarily realize are in conversation with one another. So for example, you know, you mentioned university holdings of, of grave goods or, or bodies. Um, one of the things students can do is create a project where they trace the history of those things, where they go in and they interview university officials about, you know, why does the university keep a funerary collection of native objects? Why do they not return it? Um, They can go interview tribal community members with, you know, audio or video, and then they can sit down and they can craft that together into a podcast or into a a short video episode, a short documentary that's revealing to people about, you know, the sort of motivations of these collections and and why they exist. Um, You know, one of the things that I think that does is it encourages students to sort of think of the world around them as the topic of their study. And today, you know, when there's so many questions about the value of a humanities education, part of what I like about a digital history approach is that it encourages people to think that the past is not past, that it is actually something that's always being negotiated and always being rewritten and digital history gives us the ability to have so many different rewrites of exactly the same story and exactly the same sources and allows people to sort of look at those on their own and sort of make value judgments about them on their own. And I think that's so important when we talk about Native representation and about Native history that we wanna hear from Native people. We don't just wanna hear from a university archivist or a librarian or someone like myself. We actually wanna hear from descendants. We wanna hear from the people whose history they hold.
1: When you assign things to students, How do you handle the ethical guidelines? For example, um, you wouldn't want students emailing uh, private citizens and asking them if they can interview them to get their cultural stories.
0: Right. So one of the places we start is we, we start by talking about what is considered appropriate research conduct. So for my students, they always start with what is actually available publicly through Native communities themselves. So many tribes have tribal history pages. A lot of tribal communities have digital projects where they make material available to the public. And so we sit down and we look at those materials and we talk about you know, what's appropriate to include in a project and what's not. Um, you know, one of the struggles of Native history in particular is that there's a lot of material that's made available that when it was originally made available, it was people thought it was appropriate, but today we know it's not. So, for example, um, the Hopi in the 1920s and 30s and 40s uh, had anthropologists who visited them, who recorded on film and audio uh, religious rituals, a religious ritual called the snake dance, and those materials were deposited in Washington, D.C., and they were digitized at one point and made available. And so you could search the Internet and find these religious images and these religious rituals just out there on the Internet with no context for it. And the Hopi came back to the library and archives and said, you know, these are no longer appropriate to be available online. We don't agree that, that these should be out there. And and that's one of the things I sort of use as an example with my students is to to understand the sort of where an archive or a collection is at or where a tribal community is at, and to always be sensitive to the fact that that permission can change over time. And so we want to be aware that we don't want to use information about people's private lives, like if there's abuse or trauma. You know, the the challenge, though, is, is that so much of our cultural record is a record of abuse and trauma. It's records of slavery and enslavement. It's records of colonization. And so part of my job as a teacher is to give them small case studies where we look at examples of research and talk about, you know, would we do this today? Would we do this, you know, 50 years ago and, and how do we, you know, be responsible and respectful to the communities that, that we want to study? Um, and one of the simplest things that my students do that a lot of digital projects do is they actually have an easily identified way to contact them. You know, if you can't figure out who built the project and how to contact them to discuss it, that might not be a project that we want to use. And it can be as simple as that as a starting place for a conversation about research ethics is... Do you know who built this and why they built this? Why they made it available? And if you can't answer those questions, then you know that may not be a project that should be included in your bibliography or be included in your essays. When you
1: use examples in the book, one that you offer is that when students are considering what they might want their own essay to be about, a number of them come back with the idea they're going to study dream catchers. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah. So so dream catchers are sort of one of those um, generic uh, art projects that are often given to primarily K through K through six students um, in elementary school. Um, They're often sold at at roadside markets. They're often sold at, at hobby fairs and craft fairs. Um, dream catchers, uh, as a as an icon, um, they're designed to actually help guide uh, religious and spiritual growth for particular tribal communities. The problem is that they've been divorced from those sort of particular tribal circumstances, and oftentimes people think of dream catchers as being you know something anyone can use. Right um, the the sort of parallel for me between a dream catcher in, in sort of a white society is, um, you know, like Catholics have a crucifix or have um, worry beads, the the memory beads. And I would argue a dream catcher is very similar, right? These are our blessed icons or blessed things that are used in the purpose of ritual. Um, and unfortunately, what happened in the 1960s and 70s was hobby Indians and Boy Scouts and Elementary school programs and curriculums sort of use dream catchers as sort of a generic identity for indigeneity, and so they'd say build a dream catcher, and they'd talk about you know you put it above your bed and it catches your dreams and and it helps you you know basically be a better person, and and while that's all technically correct. Um, it's it's without the context of the tribe and the community, and that these are are important religious and, and cultural rituals that have meaning beyond just hanging it above your bed, and and hoping for good dreams. You talk in the book about
1: um, students often expect for a history class there'll be a great deal of memorization, and they're expecting perhaps to be assigned a traditional five paragraph essay. When you offer them the essay, one of the questions they wonder about is, is this going to be easier? And as we're talking now, and you're taking us through the work that you ask students to do to not just consider what source they're going to use, but how the source became available, why it's available, and who was responsible for releasing the source to a larger audience. Um, The short answer is no, it's not going to be easier. (laughs) What do you tell your students when they ask?
0: I mean, so I like to start with the students that it gives you more flexibility in terms of imagination and creativity. Um, it 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 allows you to demonstrate your own sets of skills that you may have. So, for example, a few years ago, um, a student in one of my native history classes in the Unessay Project, um, instead of writing a five-paragraph essay that compared. Mm-hmm. Uh, The imagery associated with uh, Disney's Pocahontas and and other Indian themed releases from Disney, Um, instead of sort of doing a history of those things, um, she actually crafted a papier-mâché representation of a Native woman. But what's interesting about it is the the paper mache that she built is actually made up of advertisements, not just from um, commercial images like Land O'Lakes Butter and and Pocahontas and and other things, but she interwove it with ads of missing and murdered indigenous women, as well as articles about them. Um, and, And this beautiful sort of five foot, five and a half foot tall paper mache woman is a commentary for her on the relationship between sort of the dehumanization that Native women face in popular culture and the very real consequences of the, the thousands of women who have been missing and murdered um, in Indigenous communities and around the world. And I think, you know, she wrote in her reflection for me that it was the first time she was able to take her art skills and use them as a commentary on something both historical and contemporary at the same time. And I think for me, that's, that's one of the, the brilliant things about the NSA in, in that, yeah, it can be more complex and it can take more time. And you may have to learn new skills like how to edit audio files or how to edit a video or how to build a visualization. But at the end of the day, you're oftentimes not only more proud of it, but you feel a greater sense of ownership, because it becomes something that you show to people. So I've had students who, you know, do oral history projects where they're all sitting around the table at a holiday, and they're recording grandma or grandpa's life experiences, and then the student brings it back at the end of the semester, and they listen to it together as a family and talk about it. And I think for me, that's one of the beautiful things about digital history and and what it affords is that... It can oftentimes be a bridge building exercise between yourself and your interests or yourself and your family or yourself and the community you're trying to reach. I mean, it's not just five pages of of paragraph prose that end up in a file or, you know, thrown in a trash can. It becomes something our students put up on their walls or that they show to people. I mean, when people pass my office, they actually stop and ask me about it. And no one would have stopped and asked me about this student's five-paragraph essay years later. But years later, they do stop and ask about this beautiful papier-mâché figure that she created. Is Did you keep it? I did. I, she took photos of it, um, but I asked to have custody of it. So it, it sits in a corner of my office, and we're working on getting funds to raise to put it in a display case so that it can actually be out in the public. You go
1: over... Um rubrics in uh chapter three of uh the primer about what really makes a compelling essay Mm -hmm. um you do need to scaffold students particularly when they come into a history class and they think they know what you're going to ask of them and you say oh no I'm not I'm asking something completely (laughs) different Um, how do you scaffold them and can you share
0: a bit about what the rubric is? Sure, so um, one of the the first steps of scaffolding is actually idea generation. Um, A lot of times when students come into my class, what they think is that they need to have a sort of historical chronology of content, right? They want to tell me what happened, but they don't necessarily understand that that they're supposed to be telling me why it matters or how it's significant. And so one of the criteria that we use in the rubric um, is, is, is this compelling? Have you chosen materials that present a compelling perspective or view And in doing that, have you demonstrated an awareness of the totality of the issue? Um, And this is one of the things that the rubric is very helpful for is that a lot of times um, students think that that. They're supposed to be sort of writing a story with a neat beginning and a neat ending, and it should be all sort of wrapped up with a bow on top. And part of what the rubric does is demonstrate for them that there actually may be different elements of the project at different levels of complexity, right? So everyone should be able to use a primary source not everyone is able to edit primary sources together in a compelling 30-second way. Um, And that's part of what the rubric helps do is is to sort of let them sort of position themselves where their skills are, but also push them a little bit towards, you know, building mastery of of new skills or new approaches. Um, and, And that's part of what I like is it's not taking us away from, the sort of goals of an analog course, where it's to analyze a primary source, to understand historical context, and to, you know, get a better sense of, of events. Instead, what it's doing is to say we're going to do all of those things, and we're going to think about, you know, how to do this in a way that's, you know, using some new technologies and new approaches. Um, and that's part of what the rubric does is it actually judges them judges them based on the appropriateness of their decision and the technology. You know, so if, if you're writing about uh, farm safety administration photographs from the, the Great Depression, you know, that needs to be a video essay or a photographic essay. That shouldn't be a written essay. Um, and that's part of what the rubric does is it, it judges them based on their method of their essay sort of meeting up with the, the types of sources and materials that they want to be using.
1: What are some um, common pitfalls?
0: Um, So I think one of the most common pitfalls in digital history across the board is students who enter the class thinking they're going to build a 3D environment from start to finish or build a virtual game from start to finish in a 16-week semester. And by that, I mean, they need to design the story and the narrative, all of the art, all of the motions, all of the plot points. Um, A lot of times students sort of um, think that they can match Uh, what a commercial game industry can do or what a commercial visualization business can do in the same amount of time that we have in 15 or 16 weeks, um, that's not possible. So instead, you know, what they can do is they might be able to write a a process or a proposal for a game. Or, you know, we have students who come in and say things like, you know, I'm really good at Excel sheets, um, but they're not necessarily able to translate that into other skill sets. So, one of the most important things that we talk about is when they sort of start the class you know what do you already know how to do and how can we improve on that and then also what can we introduce you to that that maybe out of the box doesn't require customization or doesn't require you know a deep level of technical mastery Um, and that can vary based on class so you know i get students who come into my class who already built mobile apps and are completely comfortable you know doing that over 15 weeks and produce great products Whereas other students, you know, are not at that at place. So part of what digital history classes really have to do is be very clear about what technical knowledge a student needs to have before they come into the class, but also what technical knowledge they want you want to learn. Because there's so many different technologies out there. There's so many different platforms and programming languages and game engines and I mean, there's just so many. And so you know. I try not to overwhelm the students. I try to let them sort of make decisions where possible to guide their own interests and their own needs. Um, but it's it's a balancing act for sure and it's it's definitely something that as a beginning teacher, I was not as good at as I am after you know a decade of a decade or two of teaching. so.
1: When you talk about this skill of history of moving beyond facts and memorization to understanding why they matter, why does the fact matter, and who is presenting the fact, that takes us a bit back to chapter three, where you talk about one of the frustrations is if a student gets basically a C on an assignment, and it's typically because the sources that they use they didn't critically engage with or are sources that should not be considered sources at all. Do you want to talk about uh, that aspect of your work?
0: Sure. I think there's a challenge. Um, You know, there's so much information out there on the internet, um, both from reputable and non-reputable sources, you know, both from people who are, you know, of a tribal community and who speak for their community and those from people who um, may not always have the best of intentions in the types of history and the types of angles that they're using. And so you know, one of the, the biggest issues for my students is, is developing what we call information literacy, which is the ability to judge a source and to understand, is it reputable or is it not? Is it speaking for a community and, and is authorized by a community or is it just a random person out there on the Internet? And, and one of the things that my students sort of laugh about is, you know, I, I like to say to them, you know, anybody can put anything they want up on the Internet. It doesn't mean you have to give it time. Um, and that's that's an important thing for them to understand that just because it exists on the Internet or it exists on a .edu, um, URL doesn't necessarily mean that it is valuable or correct or authoritative. Um, and and in particular, you know, it's important for my students to understand the difference between, you know, white historians or non-Indigenous historians writing about Indigenous communities and Indigenous communities writing about themselves. Um, and there's a pretty big gap out there on the Internet, um, particularly not just among academics, but also among journalists, between those who are from Indian country or those who are from, you know, an, an urban tribal center or, or from a, an urban multicultural center um, and someone who just feels compelled to write about something. Um, and what I like to say to students is, you know, Our job as scholars is to interrogate the reasons why someone says what they say. Um, And sometimes that's about personality and and personal issues. And sometimes it's about white supremacy or about, you know, a particular political set of values or, or set of goals that that may not necessarily best represent the needs of the tribal community.
1: When students go through that process, it would seem that there's some level of internal reckoning. Is that something that you make discussion time for?
0: We do. I mean, most indigenous studies class, like many classes in black history or Latinx history, um, when you have a majority white institution offering those classes, one of the most important things we do is talk about the need to feel uncomfortable As someone who is not of those backgrounds or those ethnicities or those racial backgrounds, um, studying and learning about them. So, you know, at the beginning of class and throughout the class, I like to check in with the students about, you know, how they're feeling and about how, you know, how they have to sort of confront our own history. Um, You know, a, a joke one of the students made a few years ago about my classes, it's all the ways the U.S. government lies, cheats and kills indigenous peoples. And although that was said jokingly, you know, there's a reality to that. And and the student was trying to grapple with their own whiteness and and their own sort of familial culpability. You know, they had family who were part of many of these military efforts to clear land and to settle communities. And the student really was struggling with, you know, how do I deal with the fact that my ancestors were the very people who committed these crimes against Indigenous peoples? And I think You know, that's so important in classrooms where we're talking about and engaging with documents of the past and particularly documents of underrepresented or or minoritized communities, because, you know, they're often not allowed to be at the table. They're often not in the room. And it's important for me as an instructor to ensure that the awareness my students develop is not an awareness that is made of guilt or um anxiety but instead is an awareness made of positivity and productivity to say i can recognize that i benefit from this that my family was part of this that that my you know relatives may have done these things and my job now is is to make reparations to to be part of the restorative movement to encourage native enrollment and native faculty and native voices and, and not to just sit in a room and, and reap the benefits of, of what has happened in the past.
1: Do you see differences between your own education to learn about Native history so you could teach it and the way that you're teaching it?
0: Um, I think the thing for me is that I was that student. You know, I was raised in Ohio. Um, my father was military. My mom was a nurse who never went to college. Um, And I was raised in a family where, you know, we went to sporting events with racist mascots. We grew up in communities where there were racist symbols. Um, I had a diverse group of friends, but they were diverse internationally. Um, They weren't necessarily diverse racially or ethnically um, beyond sort of the international element. And so when I went to school, I was these students that I'm teaching. You know, I was interested in these things, but I didn't understand how I as a white woman from Ohio had benefited from all of these things and how I was privileged to be in the school district that I was in that had enrichment programs. And I was privileged to be admitted to high quality schools because my parents had the money to put me in enrichment programs and and things like that. And so you know, it wasn't until I started studying indigeneity seriously and, and started studying slavery and decolonization and all of these topics in graduate school that I realized that my own identity is wrapped up in, in this privilege. And so when I'm in a classroom with students and I see these conversations happening and I see how uncomfortable they are, for me, it's a lot of flashback. It's a lot of, you know, I've been there and, and I tell them that, you know, I've been in that room where all of a sudden I'm realizing that, that I'm benefiting from something that I didn't even know existed much less that I was part of. Um, and, and it's, it's important, I think, for students to understand that as a as a role model, right, that, that you know, just because I'm at this place now where I see decolonization and colonization and, and all of these topics and can talk more comfortably about them doesn't mean I was always at that place. I mean, I started graduate school when I was 20. Um, I got out of college early and went right into graduate school. And, you know, I thought I knew everything. And then I'm in graduate school and there are so many different types of people and and a different it was a different environment and for the first time i realized not only did i not know everything but that i had a lot of personal you know sort of privilege that i had to grapple with and that i continue to grapple with and i think if if even a little bit of that gets communicated to my students and even a little bit of it helps them grapple with their own positions um I've done my job and and one of the things I like to say to people when they ask about this, you know in the academic environment is you know part of my job as a white scholar with tenure now is to stand in front of my colleagues who are underrepresented um, or or who haven't had the same level of privilege I am and to make sure that that they're okay and that they're able to have the resources and support that that they need and and that's part of my goal. If I get to the end of my career and all people say is, you know, she helped her students become more culturally aware, and she helped ensure that that these faculty and these colleagues and these members of the public were able to have space to say their thoughts and, and to share their feelings, then, then I've had a pretty good career. One of the
1: things you talk about in the book about why professors might like to assign on essays is that they get to learn along with the students. They're often stretching technology with technology that they didn't know prior to the student saying, hey, I wanna design an app. And the professor is saying, I've never designed one. Let me see what you're <laughs> doing there. Or the student may say, I'm gonna make this um, lifelike uh, paper mache, uh, project and you'll say I don't know how to do paper mache there's learning along with the students and when you are sharing with the students that in addition to learning technologies learning presentation methods learning ways to mix medias and mix um how we talk back to uh, a source alongside the original source as you're talking about these these multiple ways that you've been working with on essays you're also telling your students how, in addition to learning how to do new things alongside them, you're still learning how to unlearn alongside them.
0: For sure. Um, It's actually kind of fun having my students stump me. Um, And some of it is just like my own predispositions, right? So like I have students who do TikTok projects and do like Instagram projects and I love them. But like, that's not really my space, right? (laughs) Like that's not, that's not a technology that like I find fun for me, Um, but I love watching them do it and I love watching them master it. And, you know, and sometimes it's content, it's not just the technology. So um, I had a student who was a biology major last year or the year before who did their entire project on native uses of particular um, biological materials out in the wild. And it was fascinating. Like I had no clue about certain like material plant life that and, like the variety of uses and like pulstices and all kinds of really cool things um, and, and so for me like that's part of the joy of the NSA is not just that like the students may bring in some new technical things for us to play with but also there's some really content area things that are outside of my own wheelhouse and I love getting to learn about it through the eyes of my students. Um, it keeps me fresh as a teacher, but it also I think represents the the values of indigeneity in the classroom. One of the things that that students um realize in, in an indigenous classroom, an indigenous studies classroom is that it's not a hierarchical space, that, that the goal of an indigenous classroom and an indigenous approach is that everyone has something to bring to the table and to share equally and, and that we all together guide the experience and that we honor our elders and we honor those with experience, but we also create space for new ideas. Um, and that's one of the things I love about the NSA project as a whole is that you know it opens the door to creativity and to innovation in ways that you don't get normally in a college classroom where the faculty member's been teaching the same class for you know decades and may or may not have updated their pedagogy recently. I mean, un-essays require you to constantly be shifting and moving. Um, and, and that's a fun thing for me. It can get overwhelming, but it's definitely fun. Is it good for students
1: to see that though, that a professor doesn't know everything, is willing to admit that they don't know, and that they're feeling overwhelmed? It seems like After we're done with grad school, we are not often in spaces where we're the beginner again. We're hired Mm -hmm. because of our expertise, and if we're going to teach something new, we spend a lot of time cramming so that we don't go in there looking like we don't know what we're doing. (laughs) And yet, one of the things we can do to really engage students in the pedagogy and push it further is to say, I don't know, what do you think?
0: Yeah, when I, um, when I teach digital history or digital humanities workshops that are skill-based, one of the things that I say to people all the time is that you can be an expert in one thing and know absolutely nothing about something else and still be a digital historian or still be a digital humanist. There's a lot of things where I may be well-known in doing this type of activity or this type of method or this type of skill, and you move me five minutes and, and five subject lines over, and I'm just completely lost. Um, but I think that's great for the students to see. I mean, I also think, you know, part of this aligns to my own philosophy, which is, you know, talking to students that learning is an ongoing process and that, you know, it's okay to say you don't know and it's okay to say you messed up or that you failed. Um, and in fact, one of the exercises in the primer is, is a failure log. Um, Sean Graham, who's this great faculty member in Canada, um, has his students create a failure log when they try and do things. And um, one of the things that that does is, is it tells the students, you know, that you need to um, not just recognize when you've learned something and succeeded at something, but you need to recognize that when you failed at something, there's still something to be learned about how you failed. Uh, and I think there's a lot of beauty in that, that, that not knowing and not, not succeeding oftentimes is the thing that sticks with you more than, than succeeding and doing well. There's so much information in a mistake. <laughs> there is. but And I think particularly at the undergraduate level where there's a lot of pressure about grades, um, you know, explaining to the students that, you know, the grade oftentimes doesn't matter so much as them learning and trying to improve That that you get an A for effort in some cases.
1: Do you ask the students to turn in any form of written reflection. We're moving away from the five paragraph essay and we're freaking some students out by doing that because that's their comfort. That's what they were getting their A's on as a high school student and those grades got them into college and are moving them through college. And part of what you want to know is what worked, what didn't work. Is there written reflection that they turn in?
0: Yeah, so um, for all the un students, they definitely do a written reflection. It's not long. It's usually a page or two, but I actually build reflective activities into the entirety of the class. So um, the students oftentimes get asked short little questions, both um, halfway through the class, but also when we're finishing a module. Uh, What did you learn? What worked for you? What didn't work for you? What would you never want someone to ever do again? Uh, Those types of things. Um, And that all becomes fodder for, you know, sort of updating or changing or adding to the course. It's kind of interesting, though, because sometimes the student feedback is feedback that um, contradicts the pedagogy. So, for example, in a history class, a lot of times you get students who say things like, we do too much reading. which i agree sometimes we do too much reading but fundamentally i need you to read the sources i need you to listen to them i need you to watch them and if you're not doing those things then we can't get to the fun stuff Um, and i think part of what reflection allows us to do is to surface for the students the causality why do we do the things we're doing why are we doing it this way what motivates the assignment what motivates the outcomes Um, And that's one of the things that I think I've improved at slowly as a teacher is explaining explicitly to the students why we're doing something or why I hope the outcome is a certain way. Um, And part of what that does is it increases student buy-in, but it also makes them realize how intentional the curriculum is and how intentional the assignments are and how intentional the rubrics are and how intentional the feedback is. Because sometimes I think students don't realize exactly how much time and energy we put in as faculty into building a syllabus or building a lesson or building a lecture. Um, And this is one way through these reflection exercises to get them to understand the amount of time and energy. Uh, And it's funny because I have um, a lot of social studies education students in my classes who are themselves training to become teachers at the K through 12 level. And a lot of them choose to do exercises where they're building digital history curriculum alongside um, some content that they're working with their students on in their, their student um, internships. And one of the things the students often come back to me and say is, I didn't realize how long it takes to create a worksheet. I didn't realize how long it takes to create questions. I didn't realize, you know, how much work it is to gather all the primary sources, the audio and the video, and to edit those into the clip links that I need um and i think that's one of the things that those reflection moments really give me is a sense of am i on the right part, sort of pathway as a teacher but also you know what resonates with the students and and what resonates with their particular interests and and sometimes that gets built into the next stage of the syllabus and sometimes that becomes a whole new syllabus all on its own
1: you give a little bit of assessment in in the book that about of the students really like being taken on this journey into digital history and particularly in the NSA and about 25% uh, they're like a hard pass.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The hard pass students, I get it. I mean, if you've been trained in education, if you've been going to school for your entire life and the message you get all the time is follow the rules, you know, read the sheet, read the questions, answer the questions, you get an A and then all of a sudden you come to a class where there's not tons of hard and fast rules about what we're going to like, not what we're going to learn, but how we're going to go about learning it. That can be really paralyzing. And for students who are very organized and logical and are used to following instructions, they can find the NSA paralyzing because there's too many options and too many choices. Um, so we have exercises that we do to try and like narrow down that paralysis, like, you know, what are you interested in? What are you good at? What did you like from the things that we've done um, that can help guide them? But at the same time, you know, if a student is unwilling to experiment in the NSA format, I'm not going to force them to, because all that does is undo any sort of positive association they may have with the benefits of the NSA um, and in those cases, I accept a five paragraph essay, you know, we do a lot of work around making sure that they have a diversity of sources that represent tribal viewpoints and those sorts of things, and, and they have to uphold standards for a five paragraph essay. Um, and, and they do that, and it works, and, and they leave the class, and they seem happy. Um, I just wonder if in five years, they'll remember that essay. And I think that's a little bit of the distinction for me is I'm not going to force anyone to do anything, but at the same time, I think it's harder to get them to have the class resonate if they're not all in on the experimentation principles.
1: You mentioned earlier that some forms of social media like TikTok are a little bit outside your wheelhouse, but in the book and in your article uh, and in the journal issue that it came out in, it talks about uh, Twitter as being an important place where professors are exchanging ideas about not only digital history and how to teach it, but about the un-essay in particular. Um, So there's kind of a
0: a meta story
1: going on there.
0: (laughs) Oh, Twitter. Yeah. So um, the hashtag NSA um, is the hashtag that gets used by faculty when they're doing NSA projects. It's really great to sort of spend some time exploring the hashtag NSA uh, threads because you get to see the NSA not just in history, but in tons and tons of different disciplines. And it's, it's pretty cool to see the variety of types of projects students come up with. Um, but, you know, Twitter is uh, undergoing some problems, changes. I don't know what the right language is, on that is right now. Who knows if it's going to survive? Um, but I will say if if I have learned anything as an academic, it's that we are always going to be talking about and learning about new pedagogy. And if it's not happening on social media in Twitter, it'll be happening on Reddit or it'll be happening in Mastodon or it'll be happening in Twi- TikTok or It'll be happening somewhere, I'm certain, because when you're passionate about teaching, you want to talk to other people about it and you want to learn what other people are doing. And, and you know, my hope is that if Twitter goes away, that that somehow those communities are able to reconstitute themselves in other social platforms so that, you know, that that sort of communal talking about teaching and the things we love and what our students produce doesn't go away. I know we're running
1: short on time. So my final question is, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners?
0: At the end of the day, I hope that somebody who listens to this, A, goes and gets the book and sees if there's anything in it that would interest them, but also that it allows them a moment to sort of think about how they're learning. Um, You know, one of the benefits and the beauties of digital history is it's constantly sort of evolving and changing and growing and, and there's lots of possibilities. And I think if there's one thing somebody could learn from this particular episode, it's just that, you know, we're always learning something new. And if you're not, ask yourself why. And and maybe it's time to go out and buy a book that interests you or go to a lecture or a public talk or go to a museum or exhibit. I mean, there's there's tens of thousands of public spaces out there where you could learn something new and. You know, maybe take an afternoon or an evening or a weekend and go do that. Go learn something new and see if it sparks something in you that gets you excited and and makes you happy. Because that's all we really want from these types of things is happiness.
1: Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Jennifer Giuliano, and taking us inside some of the design principles that you share in A Primer for Teaching Digital History. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is the Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.